welcome to The Spin. It's the whole team here this week. Aren't we all excited? How are you, Kina? I'm great, thanks, Conrad. How are you, Michael? I'm hyped. Oh. <laughs> Very convincing. You sound extremely convincing. <laughs> <laughs> we can hear the hype train. Mm. All right, guys. So we're going to be talking about e-commerce. As Kino said, pre-recording, it's an e-commerce smorgasbord. I don't mm. know if he had the, the dictionary or something there next to him. You know, looking, looking for words to oh, use. Thesaurus. <laughs> thesaurus, yeah. Um, what kind so of dinosaur got, is that? Yeah. <laughs> So we've got MassMart results, e-commerce, and then we're going to talk about, you know, Neuralink and Shinzo Abe. Uh, yeah, mm. but that's all for later. Um, so MJ, take me away. Cool. So MassMart released their interim results showing a 9.7% decline in sales. They had a trading loss of 266.6 million rand compared to last year's trading profit of 318.9 million. The main driver behind these declines were, why don't you guys guess? COVID. E-commerce. <laughs> well, COVID. Oh, yeah. Drives behind the declines were COVID. Um, yeah, this affected... Oh, wait, 56- sorry. I, I must have your question. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this, we'll get to the e-commerce soon. Um, so this affected 56% of their sales categories, according to CFO Mohammed Abdul Samad. However, the story does have a silver lining. Online sales across the Massmont group increased by 95%, while click and collect increased by 85.7%. Breaking these figures down further, games online sales doubled, Builders grew its online sales by 160%, and Macro grew online sales by 84%. Unfortunately, though, online sales still only make up 2.1% of the Massmont group's total sales, meaning that these increases didn't do much to their depressed sales numbers. So Kino, I know you've got lots of opinions and thoughts on e-commerce. So what do you make of this of this story? Yeah, so um, COVID-19 has actually been a very fruitful time for e-commerce. Um, you know, one of my colleagues in e-commerce said that it's a fortunate problem for e-commerce to have and all that doesn't sound very nice. What we've seen, seen globally is just massive growth in e-commerce and um, a massive development of e-commerce infrastructure, spe- specifically in South Africa. So look, I'm just going to chat about e-commerce in South Africa, what COVID has done for e-commerce in South Africa, and then just give a little bit of international sp- perspective. So just to start it off, right, um, I'm going to be talking specifically about Q1 results, because these were the results that were really in the brunt of COVID, where um, we were in the height of lockdown, and this really showed in the, the earnings results. Um, you know, just to start us off, we have words from Anthony Thunstrom, which is the CEO of, Clo- of TFG, the Vichini Group, and a quote from him after the ESQ1 results were, this was a quantum shift, and uh, we probably advanced two or three years in terms of online demand because of COVID-19. TFG is one of the South African retailers that really made massive investments towards the e-commerce channels, channels out of necessi- necessity because of COVID. So you'll hear me say that a lot, that... Um, a lot of e-commerce retail, a lot of traditional retailers have invested in e-commerce infrastructure because of necessity, and a lot of consumers have switched to e-commerce for the first time because of necessity. Um, you know, so what has happened? Again, we have a survey from Visa that found that 64% of consumers in South Africa bought groceries for the first time because of COVID. So, why is this word necessity so important? We have to think about: is this massive spike in e-commerce demand only because of the necessity of COVID? Or will this be a long-lasting affair? And to answer that, we kind of have to dig into why has e-commerce been not very successful in South Africa um, up until this point? 
And what it comes down to is just that there's kind of, we call it a cultural problem, but the backdrop of this cultural problem is look, you know, South African consumers are used to going to the shop and buying from malls, but you'll hear in conversations a lot of South Africans hold the opinion that is it ever going to arrive, you know, and is it going to come late? And, you know, we're kind of very skeptical about deliveries. And that's because we actually have had a very poor infrastructure for e-commerce in the past. So in the past, there were a lot of things like late deliveries, long, uh, wrong deliveries. So that kind of enforced this, this cultural standpoint towards e-commerce. A really positive thing that has happened now is because so many people have been pushed towards e-commerce out of necessity and because companies have invested in it, They've had much more positive experience, right? So that might be evidence of this having some staying power because the previous problems that we've seen are kind of being fixed with some um, exceptions. We've seen companies like Pick and Pay also transfer uh, to, to e-commerce out of necessity. But, but what happened there is they've actually had um, a lot of horror stories of you know, inefficient deliveries, wrong deliveries. And the core problem that Pick and Pay had is they tried to use their own um, transport services to deliver, you know, so they're trying to use their own order fulfillment instead of order fulfillment channels that already exist. You, you, you kind of see those pick and play little um, motorbikes riding around. So there's kind of a double-edged sword, yeah, and I'll reiterate, you know, the, the core thing is necessity, right? So South Africans have switched to e-commerce because of necessity, um, but because of that necessity, retailers have also invested a lot in e-commerce. So there have been more, you know, positive, behavior and you know just thought towards e-commerce from the african population which is very very important just for some global evidence because the problem with south africa is that you know when we try to analyze these trends in the data we don't really have any public listed e-commerce companies but let's just look um, overseas and obviously take us with a grain of salt salt because it's very different culture is different and you know the, the income base is different um in china you know e-commerce is so deeply entrenched into the culture um, to the extent that Alibaba is the biggest consumer platform there. And if we just take a, a quick glance at, you know, revenue in that Q1, you know, we've seen a 35% increase, uh, sorry, 42% increase in revenue of 2020 during COVID times and 2019. That's a massive increase, guys. And when you, when you compare that to physical retail in China, it was a negative 2.8% growth. So while normal retail actually declined, we've seen an almost 50% increase in online retail. Again, China is a company where e-commerce is very deeply entrenched. But what is so interesting is that um, one of the reasons why e-commerce is so deeply entrenched is because a previous viral outbreak of the SARS virus in China also kind of forced consumers out of necessity to switch to e-commerce. Um, so that's maybe just some historical international evidence of uh, a you kind of a tectonic shift that has happened. And, you know, maybe we say this, we see the same thing here. And then just the last bit of international evidence that is very important. Um, we look at Shopify. So Shopify is a platform that allows e-commerce retailers, you know, it's uh, the whole package for them. It allows them to set up the website and sell. It allows them to set up um, distribution channels through them. And with Shopify, we've seen massive increases in the amount of e-commerce platforms open during this pandemic and we've seen you know massive increases in the revenue quick statistics new stores created on shopify platform grew 62 percent between march 13 2020 and april 24 2020 so you know there's been a global uh you know shift towards e-commerce because of this pandemic there's been a local shift towards e-commerce but at the end of the day we have to kind of think about is the shift going to you know is is, is there going to be staying power or was it just because of necessity 
Um, and that's kind of I just, just want to just interrupt you. You're talking a lot about sure. you know the supply side of of these these companies having to yeah. implement channels to to work with um, you know getting getting the, the the products to to the consumers. But I think yeah, from yeah. a South African perspective, you know, a lot of the consumers live in rural areas. A lot of people yeah, exactly, uh, they exactly. don't they can't afford the data. They don't have the the smartphones capable of running the apps that allow these these online uh, services. So you know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. help that we have all this, these these channels and, and and different distribution systems and Shopify shops if you know the the, the core customer can't actually use it. Because uh, so a lot exactly. of these people yeah. that can maybe will, but a lot of, at, the, at the end of the day, a lot of the South African consumers are still just going to have to go to the shop rights, the checkers, because that is the only thing that they have access to. Yeah, and that's very important, like Conrad just said, is because the, the other problems in Africa in e for e-commerce is obviously structural, like Conrad pointed out. So where we are seeing this growth is obviously going to be in the income class of people that, you know, are going to be able to afford e-commerce. And that's where the growth will be centralized. And that's where all the growth will happen. And that's where the growth has happened. So as Conrad said, you know, that will be obviously a dampener on e-commerce's success. Um, you know, and no matter how much e-commerce grows, as a result of COVID and of all these factors, as Conrad says, structurally, we still won't see a massive, you know, uptick in, in e-commerce across the board for consumers, as we see in China, um, because of those, those structural um, differences in the countries. Thanks for pointing that out, Conrad. No, I, you know, as you said, you know, you, you take the data from different countries with a pinch of salt because every country yeah. has a different structure. So yeah, yeah, yeah. just something that, yeah. that has to be looked at. All right. So, now on to the last two sections. So Neuralink, one of Elon Musk's many pet companies, had a key day on Friday the 28th of August with a demonstration of his neural implant um, in pigs, demonstrating how the implants can upload real-time data of the, the brain waves to external sources, which can then be analyzed. Musk hopes to one day use this in humans to help control mental, mental diagnoses and also almost like a phone in your brain so that you can upload your, your memories, keep them safe, and then you know, maybe stream music directly to your head. These are all things that I've read in articles. Um, I just imagine a Shopify ad or Spotify ad when you're sleeping. That wouldn't <laughs> be too great. Um, with $158 million taken out of the piggy bank to fund Neuralink, um, let's hope that more than just bacon brain come out of it. I've now used all the pig-based jokes I can think of. Um, so we'll, we'll move Thank on goodness. to the next story. <laughs> so um, Shinzo Abe, the longest ever serving prime minister of Japan, has resigned due to ill health. And I, I, can, I can feel it. And I can feel, feel across the Zoom chat that you two are getting nervous and skittish now because this sounds like politics. Politics. Um, <laughs> so, so we'll have a look at his unique form of economics. Um, which is widely known as abonomics, which is based on a three-arrowed approach of monetary easing, or you know, for, for our listeners, um, the, the Reserve Bank going and making more money, fiscal spending, which is the government going, yeah, we've got more money, so let's spend it, um, and structural reforms, which is like, wow, corruption is a bad thing, so maybe let's, let's you know, get rid of it, or like, let's get rid of red tape to, to do these things. Um, so this three-arrow approach uh, was initially implemented to help Japan emerge from the last two decades it had previously been in. Uh, my question to you two is that, do you think South Africa has the capacity and the stomach to launch an aggressive uh, three-pronged approach such as this? 
Um, I'll just touch on the, I just want to talk about the kind of monetary policy from Japan's side, because that's very really interesting, Conrad. Um, Japan's central bank is very unique in the fact that it started unconventional monetary policy, like quantitative easing in the late 1980s, you know, so they've been easing for more than 15 years, as opposed to the rest of the world that kind of started QE as a result of the 2008 GFC. Um, and then just another interesting thing there is that Japan's current government debt ratio is around 230%. So they are a very um, indebted nation and they are, have made use of unconventional monetary policy for a very long time. Conrad, could you just quickly um, just repeat what the three-pronged approach is, just, just very quickly? So it was um, a three-arrowed approach of monetary easing, fiscal spending, and structural reforms. Um, look, I think when, whenever you, you, you talk about economic policy and you try to look at that in a South African scope, we have to think about all the, you know, the structural economic problems that we have before we can even come to the point of, um, you know, talking about monetary policy, you know, you know, there's massive structural problems, you know, massive, you know, people don't have access to basic services, there's massive problems with the education system. So there's a lot of public spending that has to happen in those areas. And we are very resource constrained when it comes to that. When you look at Japan, you know, it's, it's a very small country compared to Africa, you know, it's has very different culture. Um, the implementation of stuff like that is much easy, much easier in a country like Japan when compared to Africa for obvious reasons. And when it comes to monetary policy, I don't know if you've talked about it on this podcast before, but um, you know, quantitative easing is very hotly debated, you, you know, amongst economists on the effectiveness of it, on if it has been effective at all. And a lot of South African economists or economists covering South Africa have been debating on the actual effectiveness of monetary policy in a country like South Africa, where we have these deep rooted structural problems. Um, and part of that is, if you just think about it, when we have such deep rooted structural problems, you know, the way that monetary policy usually comes into effect is that, you know, we drop rates and consumers can borrow more and businesses can borrow more and spending can increase. Um, we, when those channels are less efficient because of the deep rooted structural problems and unemployment is so high, you know, we start to think about how impactful is monetary policy. And I think me and you chatted about this before, Conrad, on traditional monetary policy in South Africa. Yes, we have. Yeah. We have definitely. And MJ, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, tying back to actually what we were saying about the um, you know, e-commerce discussion is that it's so difficult to to kind of, you know, it seems like, you know, you can't kind of take what they did and just obviously you can't take it and copy and paste. Like one yeah. one big difference between our countries, you know, setting aside cultural differences, setting aside loads of other differences is their deflationary environment that they experienced for so many years. And that was a big part of, about, um, of um, economics, I think, was getting was increasing inflation. I think it's called reflation or something yeah. weird yes, like yes. that. And then also just to briefly touch, actually, believe it or not, on the um, political aspect of things. Wow. But, you know, oh, you know that. <laughs> that three-pronged approach, you need cooperation from, you need co co cooperation from the Reserve Bank, you need cooperation from government. Um, it's, yeah, it's not as simple as like, you know, printing money. It's, it, it needs that kind of cooperation and, um, the actions of those organizations need to move in tandem else you can't achieve it. And I'll, I'll just not to talk too much about politics, but when we talk about policies in countries like Japan, you know, about, you know, Nordic countries as well, um, these are all homogenous societies, right? Where, 
you know, there are a lot of deep-rooted problems in Africa because of race and so Africa is in the marginalized country. So there's a lot of research, research got into why implementation of policy is easier in homogenous countries, especially in countries that don't have the history that South Africa has, not to get too much into it. Um, but that's also another big factor. And then just something that came to mind is that we have very unique problems that we have to deal with in terms of, uh, we've talked about it a lot, you know, um, South Africa has a massive government debt problem right now to the extent that rating agencies have been saying for months that, you know, this is one of the main problems that we have to get under control and we need to reduce our debt level. So, you know, we have the SOEs that we have to take care of. So I think before we can embark on this expansion in policy, that we definitely need to make our economy grow. You know, we have to stop the bleeding on these fronts and we have to deal with these individual problems, which makes it very difficult for us to just, you know, go full speed ahead, grow full speed ahead, expansive policy. So I think that's another factor to consider in this discussion. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think we could we could keep this debate up for quite a while. Yeah. So I think that takes us to the end of today's spin. It's been a very varied and interesting chat. I hope you guys mm-hmm. found some value in it and our listeners as well. And enjoy the rest of the week. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers guys.